This is the last coffee house. We are recording from a new location. There are going to be all sorts of background noises. So I'll just be aware of that. But today, we have got a big deal. So the question is, how far can we go? Do we have limitless potential as super special hairless primates? The author of The Beginning of Infinity kind of believes that. That's David Deutsch. It was published in 2011, and it talks about a lot of things. So let's just get started on the content. First, this idea of unbounded progress. A big theme of the book is about how humans are especially capable of acquiring and developing knowledge. That might seem intuitively true. This author kind of takes it a whole bunch of steps beyond just, just special when it comes to knowledge. There's a discussion about empiricism and induction and how obviously our senses can be deceptive, so we can't just rely on empiricism. The definition of knowledge is justified true belief, which doesn't get us a whole lot closer to a technical definition of it, but that's, that's fine, it's great to have a definition. The Enlightenment was a rebellion about knowledge, love that, and there was a change that it became a quest for good explanations and not just predictions about phenomena. Now we're looking for good explanations. And the West is a culture that grew around the Enlightenment and continues to grow around the Enlightenment. And we've got this whole principle of mediocrity that's a thing that Deutsch does not like and argues against. It's something he references as proffered by Dawkins, Richard Dawkins. And there was that quote, I forget who said it, but it's that the universe is queerer than we suppose and queerer than we can suppose. Deutsch rejects this. He says that humans have a special explanatory knowledge. And if we wanted to live on the moon, we could go live on the moon, and that humans are universal constructors. So this is a difference not just in, like, along a continuum, that we're just better at things that other animals do, but that there's a categorical difference. And he likens the belief that there are things beyond our comprehension to religion. So he doesn't really think that there are things beyond our comprehension. He brings up evolution just as a primer, so he talks about how evolution works in general. Obviously that's been covered and covered in many a different format, but then he applies that to knowledge and knowledge replicators and how that works. Later he'll talk about memes specifically. Brings up fine-tuning, and as a physicist, you know, he goes into some a little more detail about all the issues around anthropocentrism and fine-tuning and the rules, all the physical rules about universes and how that all applies and uh, talks about the, the development of language and numbers and how Archimedes needed higher numbers than the Greeks had so that's why he had to develop his own number system and movable print type and how big of a deal that was. The development of computers and how the revolution, the technological revolution could have happened a century earlier, you know, around the 1840s. <laughs> and so they really dropped the ball at that time. And Babbage and Lovelace, and yes, there is a comic book about them. I know that's what it sounds like. They are a couple of people. Ada Lovelace was the child of Lord Byron, the only child of Lord Byron, and she was the first person really to do some coding, some computer coding. And Babbage was a mathematician who worked with her, and they worked with each other for a long time. And Deutsch says that they could have developed this computer around the 1840s. You know, we'd have a, a huge head start and be in an incredible place right now if they had. And brings up the Turing test. Of course, anybody who's seen the movie Ex Machina, it's a fun depiction of a lot of these kinds of issues. Although when it comes to the Turing test, there's a twist on it. And the Turing test, of course, is once you have an AI that's capable of, that seems like a human to another human, then it passes the Turing test. But what Deutsch brings up here 
is the difference between just like a toaster with some tricks that can trick human beings into believing that it's, it's real or it has real intelligence and actual AI. Now that demarcation doesn't necessarily have to be a real thing. There is a big difference between something being able to trick you, you know, like you're talking to Siri and she responds to something with a joke and a real artificial intelligence that has so much complexity that you just can't distinguish it from what a human being's brain does. And he brings up the idea of chatbots. And so a chatbot might respond to you as if, and it seems like that it's just developing these answers at the time that you're talking to it, but in reality it had those coded into it a long time ago. Now, arguably, there's there's not a whole lot of difference between that and what a human does. Of course, Deutsch would argue against that, but if you really take a look at it, then is there that much of a distinction between what a chatbot does in using external stimuli and having pre-programmed responses, is there that much of a difference between the chatbot doing that and what humans do with external stimuli when it comes to genetic code and all the pre-packaged built-in things that have been learned over a long period of time when it comes to responses to stimuli? So, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I do know. I mean, I'm right, obviously, but... Infinity Hotel, excellent thought experiment about trying to understand what infinity actually means, and it goes down all these different pathways. And this is a book that I'm going to hold on to and I'm going to reread multiple times because I'm not a physicist, I'm not a mathematician, and it would be great to have a better understanding of how all those things kind of work. But so Infinity Hotel is a hotel that has an infinite number, number of rooms. And using this setup, he tries to explain all these different concepts about what infinity would mean, such as every room in Infinity Hotel has incredible luxuries. They spend a thousand dollars a day on the incredible luxuries in your room. And so how do they pay for that? Well, so for room one, they use the rents that you have to pay or the fees or whatever of like a dollar a day they use those fees from rooms one to one thousand and they use all those for room one and then room two to pay for those luxuries they use the fees from one thousand one to two thousand and pay all those in room two now infinity obviously <laughs> if it's finite then you're not going to have enough for each room but when, the way infinity works is you're going to be able to pay for every room, and every room's going to have those luxuries. And so it's just this mind-bending thing where you're just like, I don't understand what any of this actually means or how that works, but that's infinity for you. Brings up Malthus, the carrying capacity of a population. Now of your population is going to be doom us all, but also brings into something he'll bring up repeatedly about how we don't know the future technologies that we're going to have or how things are going to change as we go along and that people die because of a lack of knowledge as opposed to something else. And one point that Deutsch brings up here that I totally agree with is that we can make objective philosophical and moral progress and given the fact that I don't believe there are any moral absolutes or you can be have an objective moral, um, you have to go into a whole bunch of esoteric philosophy here to be able to really get it across. But there are ways to make objective progress in those areas once you've established certain parameters. So I think he's totally right on this and that we don't treat them in that way. And I think we need to when it comes to philosophy or moral progress. And has an optimistic view about the way this whole thing works, that problems are inevitable but soluble. Brings up Florence and many enlightenments in different areas and how a lot of them were stalled along the way. There, there's this 
mass burning of books in Florence at one point. And if any of those early, really early experiments had succeeded, that you and I would be exploring the stars by now and might be immortal by this point. There's this lengthy dialogue between Socrates and Hermes about epistemology, how we know what we know, how we come to know what we know, and it's by Socratic method, so it's back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I thought it was a lot of fun to, to read that particular discussion. He brings up, he's a physicist, brings up some physics stuff about the uncertainty principle and how it's not a matter of empiricism to understand the uncertainty principle, but that you can actually get, get there by deduction from principles of quantum theory. And I don't know enough about the uncertainty principle or the multiverse theory or anything like that to really be able to... So I'd like to read books just on those things so we could really nail those down. But they're really complex and I don't want to misrepresent how those things actually work. There's this conversation between the author and reader about what you're supposed to get out of the book, which was an interesting take. This idea that dinosaurs are just the sensations of the paleontologist experiencing them. And he's saying that that's not the case. That's something that we could proffer and say that that's what paleontologist is doing, is just reporting the sensations that are experienced by finding a dinosaur, as opposed to actually finding a dinosaur. But he advocates a kind of realism, that there is some kind of real world out there, and to act otherwise isn't really useful. There are a whole bunch of different ways we could take take this whole process of trying to figure that out, but I'm 100% behind that, trying to figure out, even if we can't know 100% one way or the other, if we have to go by a normative stance, then we still have to try to figure out, okay, what are the things that are overlapping between us, even though we only have our subjective experience? Happiness, so this is one way that he talks about, is that if you're trying to study happiness and you get a bunch of people to fill out surveys about what's, how happy they are, then it might just be measuring people's willingness to report happiness on surveys as opposed to actually getting at what happiness is. And this is a big issue, obviously, when it comes to just trying to understand what humanity is in psychology in general. And then you'll end up having this study in the headline that says happiness is X or Y. And then the news story doesn't put quotations around the particular terms because the, the particular terms like happiness has a particular meaning within the scientific literature. And people just read those news stories or even just the headlines and they get a particular idea that they want to have about what it means has a whole section on representative government and apportionment issues in government. I think I tuned out for most of that section for some reason, even though I, <laughs> I mean, I studied government and political science and law, and so I should have been interested in that part of it, but for some reason I just shut my brain off, and then I awoke at the end of that section, so I don't know. Then we get into the memes, and this is where I was very in tune to it, is how memes work, and just these broad discussions about memes containing knowledge and how they replicate, and their meme generations, and how they compete for survival. Of course, meme, for anybody who isn't aware, meme is what Dawkins coined as the equivalent, the kind of idea equivalent of what a gene is. So we have genes, and those things are passed on and change and, and selected for, but memes do the same thing, just in our own brains. Deutsch describes it as brains being in a, an arena of selection. So we have all these competing ideas, not just between people, but in our own brains, trying to figure out which ideas we're going to hold on to, how we're going to change them, and which ones are going to survive better after we change them, and all that stuff. So I think this is kind of the frontier of really understanding what humans are, how they think, why they think what they think, and how humans change over time. And talks about the selfish meme, so it's like the selfish gene, which was written by Dawkins, but it's the selfish meme. So memes, they're going to naturally want to, I use the word want, but I use it loosely here. They want to survive 
over other memes. The ones that want to survive more are the ones that are going to survive better, and they're going to be propagated more throughout the population or throughout your brain in general. Deutsch talks about static societies versus dynamic societies. Of course, these are vast oversimplifications, and I'm sure he's aware of that, and it's fine pointing that out, but he's trying to point out that static societies have particular characteristics, so they'll have a lot of violence and suppressed creativity, whereas dynamic societies, they rely on creativity and ability to be able to change quickly as necessary, so adapt quickly to different circumstances. And you have rational and anti-rational memes. Again, it's, it's vastly oversimplified, but he's just trying to get you to be able to function within these head spaces so you can kind of understand these ideas. But if you have anti-rational memes, then you have to use static societies, or anti-rational memes will propagate in static societies. And critical thinking is not something that's going to maintain a robust amount of anti-rational memes. Critical thinking is going to kill anti-rational memes, where it's going to amplify rational memes. So things that aren't supported rationally, anti-rational memes, if you have critical thinking within the population, they're going to get weeded out and destroyed. There's so, I mean, there's so much to be able to talk about related to that. It's such a good starting point for so many good ideas and complex ideas. We just, we don't have the time for that. I'm already well into this and uh, we've got to, we've got to keep it going. We've got a lot of books to read. So we might have to do that at some point. Just do a topic and just really nail down the different perspectives on that topic and then get to the right answer, which will be my answer, of course. We might have to do that at some point. But then he goes on to the evolution of creativity and questioning how something like creativity evolved and uh, rejects a kind of sexual selection for it, but references things like learning to wave or learning to how to use a word and how we never really learn those things per se in the way we would think that we would learn those. There's things that we have to know circumstances and a whole bunch of different things go into how we learn how to do that. And says that parrots never parrot, not parents, parrot, so the bird, never had a choice on what to imitate. They are devoid of creativity. They just imitate whatever they imitate. I'm going to have some issues with that whole idea as we go along. He references guns, germs, and steel, and kind of rejects the thesis about the axes on the various continents and the kinds of livestock and plants, edible plants that were available, and says that's not the real reason. It's really about the ideas, the different ideas between populations that got them to where they were. Brings up climate change with one of the first, I think, newest, newer ideas that I've heard on climate change. Obviously, this is from 2011, but I never hear people talk about this. We should prepare for hurricanes even if we didn't cause hurricanes. <laughs> so even if some big event, like climate-related event, is going to happen in the future, whether we cause it or not, whether we have anything to do with it or not, Deutsch talks about how it doesn't matter whether we cause it or not. We should be ready for any climate change issue that could come up. <laughs> You know, so I think that's a fair idea. Now, it will question, lead to questions about how much we can do about it if we didn't cause it. And that's one thing about humans. We love to think that we just have control over everything, whether it's somebody's intelligence or whether education can solve all of our problems or climate change in general. We love to have control over all those things. Uh, it has a very religious character to it. But anyway, that's a, an interesting way of putting it, an interesting idea. We should be ready regardless of who caused it. And we don't know what future discoveries are coming around, so we can't know what's in store for us that we will have or won't have in the future, so we have to keep that in mind. Summary, Marx, Engels, and Diamond are wrong. It's really about ideas. That demarcation is kind of curious to me, but 
That's what the author says. And then he finally talks about how our knowledge is not nearly there as we like to. There's a chronocentrism in it that, that people said, you know, decades ago that, okay, we, we finally figured everything out. It's just a matter of time. We don't need to keep pushing for this. Carl Pilkington would be on in this camp. But he says that knowledge is not nearly there. We're not almost done with knowledge. That we're never going to find finality and infallibility. It's just not going to happen. He references Nick Bostrom's theory about simulated universes and has a couple of issues with it. I think one of them was about how, like, what about the, because the, the theory is that there are going to be more simulated universes in the future than there are real ones. So it makes sense that ours is a simulated one. But Deutsch talks about how, well, don't those computers have to run on you know, power sources and transistors and have certain amounts of processing power. So is that really, is it really likely that there are going to be more of those doing that sort of a thing that have to be produced and developed and all that and maintained than there would just be a real world? So I don't know. And then he makes some pretty just brash claims about how AI is not going to mean the end of the human era, like some say, that there's no such thing as a superhuman mind, that the only thing now is automation of things. So he goes kind of back on... <laughs> Because it's, it's saying that it's the end of history with the hu development of the human mind. Our primate wetware is just the end of history. But also all of the other things that he said. And that humans and AI would never be anything other than equal. And there are just so many questions. And saying that the singularity is a discontinuity is a mistake. Okay, so that's pretty much the, the whole book. So what's some criticism of this thing? I So I'm going into my analysis, but this criticism kind of summed up really well my takeaway from the book as I walked away from it. David Albert, a philosophy professor at Columbia University, has described the book in a New York Times review as brilliant and exhilarating, but presenting instead of a tight, grand, cumulative system of ideas, a great, wide, learned, meandering conversation. So that's what I thought of it. He also states that Deutsch does not present a live scientific hypothesis, but a mood informed by profound and imaginative reflection on the best and most advanced science we have. So yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's it's really tough. The reason I use that is because it's really tough to say it in a better way than how David Albert says it there. So just some more stuff on my analysis. A lot of important ideas to discuss. Just He tosses in so much, it's impossible to have a deep conversation about any of it in particular. But the idea of un bounded progress is kind of a dangerous one. It seems ego-driven and this kind of progressive hubris. I mean, there are many individuals who can't figure anything out. They can't manage their own health. They spend most of their days blogging about The Bachelor, and suddenly we have unbounded progress. I mean, obviously, if the idiots rose up and, <laughs> and killed all the smart ones, then would we still have unbounded progress? There's no kind of a continuum there when it comes to what people are capable of doing. And calling human beings universal constructors, and this is where the parrot stuff comes in, that they don't have a choice on what to imitate, but humans do. Why? I mean, either from a normative perspective of how human brains work, you know, how thoughts arise and how we come up with things and how susceptible to outside influences we are, or looking at it from a philosophical perspective on free will and how free will doesn't exist and obviously doesn't exist. It's weird to make this special carve out for these particular primates, <laughs> the homo sapien, and it's likely very wrong to do so. I mean, we're likely just primarily motivated by our lower level base instincts and we manage those with our higher cognition but there's not some kind of categorical difference between us and lower primates and then memeology just in general needs way more development as a discipline
Coughlin. I, he's got a, a bit of a primer here, but it's so just at an early stage when it comes to understanding the way ideas are transferred between people and all that. So you have things like, you know, with a gene, you still have all sorts of complexity, even though we have a limited number of base pairs and you can look at it chemically, you can look at it. With a meme, we don't even really know where that should be bounded yet. It could be a word, could be a sound, could be a letter, but we still have to figure that out and lay the foundation for being able to understand this whole discipline of memeology. <laughs> so, but it's good to see somebody talking about it. Big picture wise, I mean, it's kind of all big picture, but primarily we have to be careful about and recognize how we know what we think we know and exhibit a whole bunch of humility, like I'm always saying, when it comes to being certain about particular ideas, particular propositions. Just remember, if we took the collective knowledge of every human ever and strained it for wrong ideas and bias with 100% accuracy, assuming we could do that, and just put it in one book or on one website for people to reference, no human being ever could just download it onto their brain and make sense of it without issues related to limits on processing power, attention, time, health, interest, all those things. So we aren't all that capable, just in general. <laughs> So, Beginning of Infinity, important contribution, for sure, worth the read, and we'll go on from here and hopefully have kind of a better understanding of the way that we should be thinking about and talking about knowledge in general. Anyway, this is the last coffee house. Oh my gosh, thank you. That was a marathon of an episode, but thank you very much for listening, and we're going to have some uh, more straightforward books <laughs> coming up pretty soon here, and get back to some literature stuff, and, and we'll get to go from there. All right, thanks. Bye. Thank you.